Well, hello. Uh, welcome. Um, I'm David. Um, it's great to see such a, a diverse um, crowd come out tonight for this discussion. Um, as Danielle mentioned, uh, we see this kind of as the beginning of a series of, of, of discussions, of conversations about um, how architecture does interact or um, intersect um, with art, with the city, um, with itself, in fact. Um, and so this, this first conversation, I think, is going to be a crucial beginning to this discussion. Um, so I'm extremely honored um, to be hosting today and, and of course want to thank um, Gene Sherman and all here at SCAFE for the invitation. It's, it's a, an enormous honor. Um, so yes, I guess I should introduce Rob and Gabe. Uh, of course, they are the directors of ARMA and they are the, the designers of the amazing pavilion we have outside. And I think just to kind of get the ball rolling, one thing that I think is very clear for everyone who sees the project outside is that it's an enormous undertaking. Um, if you haven't yet picked up the catalog that SCAFE made about this uh, project, you really should because of not only Anthony Burke's uh, wonderful essay um, about the project, but also the, the interview um, with uh, Rob in which they discuss a lot of the background of the project, but also the technological feats that were accomplished. We're not going to go too much into that tonight. Um, when we open up for questions, we can start that then. Um, but I think first, maybe we should talk about the team. Talk about the enormous number of people that were involved mm. to make this work. Yeah, yeah. So I'll hand it over to either of you. Yeah, well, I mean, like you mentioned, it's, um, it's impossible, I think, and it's the same with any building, but particularly with this one, it's impossible for, for any single person or entity to make. It's, it's a huge undertaking. And first and foremost, it wouldn't have been possible without, um, without the gallery, without Gene Sherman. So without the Shermans, um, Gene and, and Brian and, uh, and the gallery, and the, on the one hand, and, um, and Andrew Cameron and BVN and, and Nelson Mears supporting um, the entire Fugitive Structures project, um, it's just not possible at all. Right. And then so as, along with, with, with the sort of patrons and benefactors, then you have a whole series of people who who combined to produce the thing. So everyone, everyone donated time and materials. So, you know, first and foremost, Terry Tisdale from Ox Engineering, uh, who fabricated everything um, completely free of charge. Uh, all of the stainless was donated. Uh, all of the welding, which was a single person welding nonstop for months. Um, all of the brackets, uh, all of the laser cutting. And then uh, CSF, who donated all of the Corian, um, and then the current fabricators who molded everything. So it's a, a huge, um, uh, for Lingos commercial interiors, it's a huge undertaking. Yeah. yeah. I think it's one thing about architecture when it does intersect with, <clears throat> with the world of art that it does become obvious how none of us work in isolation, right? That yeah. these are always, this is always a team yeah. project. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. It's, um, <laughs> you know, and that analogy about it's like making a movie. Right. It's that many people involved. Mm. Yeah. Well, great. Um, so I think the first area that I'd like to discuss today is the idea of the pavilion, the idea of the folly. So we grew up, I grew up, um, thinking of buildings like that as follies. And, and there's a long tradition of this. Um, but maybe we can start off by discussing that. What, what's the history of, of this sort of structure which in some ways is of course very architectural but in other ways it's missing a lot of the characteristics that we normally prescribe to architecture. So mm -hmm. what, what, what did you guys discover about the history of the folly? Uh, yeah, I guess um, we, saw, uh, we saw it as a challenge, you know, to actually respond to a brief that is, you know, you could think of it as an unprogrammed space, as a, mm. uh, as a as a building that doesn't actually have uh, so much an intended purpose. And um, some of the uh, examples we saw here were um, uh, like buildings, uh, sorry, architectural follies in... In, uh, uh, in the UK. Yeah. I mean, the follies, the follies are really interesting because, because uh, number one, it, 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 
necessarily doesn't have a program. So right. it automatically treads a fine line because it immediately becomes something which is other than architecture. It's um, because architecture by default always has a program. It's always something that you do something within that's, that is more than just a... It has a function. It has a function. Right. Right, which would differentiate it from sculpture or from art. So to, to strip that away from the architectural um, sort of installation or the intervention then makes it into a folly or into something other than architecture. Mm. And so there's a whole history of that which happens um, from, the, from the 18th century through um, in, in England in places like Stourhead um, and this idea of uh, a grand tour where you would go to, to Europe and, and you'd see classical buildings then come back and, and, and then it becomes an intellectual game of knowing these buildings in relation to a context and then seeing them in a landscape. And right. So it's, that's interesting though, right? Because if historically and kind of pre-modern, uh, pre-modernism, I should say, the idea of the grand tour was that you had a knowledge that no one else had, right? That, that yeah. you went and you experienced these things in person, yeah. uh, you, you saw them as as they were meant to be, yeah. as ruin, of course. But but then to come back and to reconstruct them or to kind of replicate them at another scale, yeah. like what does that mean? Like what? How does that then contribute to the kind of maturation of architecture, or does it? Do you think it's part of that conversation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it um, it directly references. Architecture, like so, and and directly references a, a particular um, a particular building from a particular time. Right. It opens it up to discourse in another place, so it it dislocates it in place and time, <coughs> and and it, and through changing scale or, or context, um, it at once is is both I think um, fun, but then it's also educational. It, it, mm. it does play a role in in a narrative or in, in conversation. Right, so then now, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead in my, my notes, um, but that trifolium doesn't reference anything but itself, right? This is not a moment that you're recreating for someone who wasn't able to, to go, right? You're creating now something that is architectural because it's spatial. Yes. Like we can walk through it and touch it, and we can, you know, receive yep. shelter or whatever yep. in the most boring terms. Yeah. But it doesn't reference anything other than itself. No, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't. It's not. It's not. It's not referencing anything. Right. Yeah. So that, is that a sidestep? Do you think of the tradition of the folly, or is this some new version now? Yeah, I think it's a it's a contemporary version. Like I, I guess if you were to talk about say um, follies in Paris, maybe. Right. Right. Like um, Shumi. Yes. So. It's at once, it's non-referential, but it is non, it's unprogrammed, it's playful. Mm. Um, it's, it's a thing in and of itself. Yes. Well, I was just, I was gonna bring that up actually, and for those that are not burdened with an education in architecture, <laughs> I envy you. Um, Bernard Schumi became quite famous. He was the, the former dean of Columbia University. He became quite famous in the 80s for winning this mega competition. And I'm sure it's a place that a lot of you have been in Paris, the Parc de Lillette. And it, he, in a very regular grid over an enormous park-type structure, built these functionless buildings. Now, some of them were toilets or stores or cafes. Most of them, though, had no function, right? So they existed just as an object in the landscape, almost as a way to give you something to go towards. Well, there's another one I can see in the distance. It's bright red, like our chairs. And I can walk there now to that. So I think, in a lot of ways, I think we owe Shumi an enormous amount of gratitude. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. I know that you know, I know that you guys studied Shumi as well. Um, his ideas of event space, his ideas of kind of creating almost something uh, cinematic. Yeah. Did that come into play? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, I mean, and that would be one person you would say it does indirectly reference. So this idea of an event space, it's, it's very clearly, if you were to say the one thing that the pavilion does do is it does make a space for events to happen. Right. Um, like tonight or you know, like anything. It's completely, it's open to that kind of program. Right. Um, 
So there's definitely, uh, definitely a lineage from, from Shumi for sure. But one thing we did talk about a lot was this idea of a space that's uh, effective, as in uh, something that would really uh, create uh, emotion and spectacle uh, in anyone moving through it. And um, I guess that was a, a key idea that drove um, you know, what became a very technical process, mm. a very experimental process. But we were really interested in, 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 in rounding that out and saying, well, we think we could make something really spectacular like this, but we wouldn't, it's really experimental in the sense that we didn't know what that effect would be, what just, just, just how it would, would, would sort of affect uh, you in, as, yeah. a, as a person yeah, that, through that space. Yeah, that becomes a speculative project. Yeah, so you know that you have a hunch as to what you want to achieve. So maybe what were some of the, what were some of the, um, the experiences that you were hoping to create? Like what were some of the effects that you mm. hoped to, to kind of bring to mind for someone viewing the object? Mm. It's a tricky one because everyone experiences these things differently. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, personally, I've, I've always been, you know, when you travel and you look, I, th I don't know, I think architects do it all the time. I, I imagine other people do it as well. When you travel, you, you find yourself going to buildings to look at, at buildings, you know, right. like the Parthenon or, or whatever. And, and there's a reason you go to look at them. It's mm. like you want to go look at that building because it's amazing for this thing, whatever. So there's definitely, there was definitely a desire to create that kind of attraction within the pavilion that it's a place you want to come and experience because it's so radically different from anything that you would probably normally experience in, in, a, in, a, in regular context. Mm. And, and really that was, that's brought about through a sort of seamless continuity of space, um, through reflection and through the curving of reflection, uh, through light and the reflection of, of sort of myriad reflections of light around the space. Yeah. Um, patterning, how that works. Um, taking a, a, a seemingly non-structural material, one that you would normally find in, in kitchen bench tops, yeah. and curving it and making it structural. Mm. So these types of moments which would inspire awe or, or surprise um, or delight. So it's not very, I would say, highfalutin. <laughs> yeah. it's, um, it's a really, it's a primal sort of uh, experiential and, and it should be really playful. You know, yeah. like when, when in the opening you saw kids uh, running around and playing in it. And, was, and it's um, somewhat trite to always say when kids play in things, it's cool. But, <laughs> um, but when you see that, it's exactly the, the kind of behavior that you want to, you know. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's interesting. I know that when you, like watching the design process as you move through iterations, mm. one thing that you always said, and also when you, when you lectured for my students in the photography degree at UTS, um, one thing you mentioned to them was that you, you guys started from the inside, that the inside was the moment, yep. and that you were trying to then go from that point out. Yeah. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about that process, mm. not only just the experiential or kind of um, emotive things that you wanted to, yeah. to create, but also the technological kind of um, consequence yeah. of constantly shifting from in to out, knowing that those two things were, were inextricably linked. Mm. Well, I mean, there's a few things to talk about here. I mean, it's sort of conceptually, this idea of the inside and the outside within architecture, but then also um, pragmatically our experience working together and, and coming through uh, a sort of an architectural education, working out of practices. Um, and I don't want to, you jump in, but um, I think for a lot of our, at the very beginnings of our career, we were working for other people and always, always from the outside in. Right. Um, you know, almost to the point, and it's, it's a little bit of a, a I think a, for me anyway, a criticism of contemporary architectural practice is that it can tend to be focused too much perhaps on the exterior of a building. And you could say, you could say, well, that's not so bad because in the city, if you focus on designing exteriors of buildings, it's not such a bad thing because the exteriors of buildings become the interiors of the city. Right. And so really you're focused on the city and it's not really that bad. That's a good thing. But in its most negative reading, it does become 
um, this sort of tender by render where as an architect you're really building a 3D model and then photoshopping it and then sending it out for a contractor to build. And I think it was a little bit of a reaction to that and to mm. that sort of, and just basically the things that we tended to work on within offices. Yeah. And so I think um, that we both felt that, uh, that it would be interesting, it would be satisfying, but it would also be an interesting experiment to really focus on designing um, a project from the inside out. And we said we don't, it looks like we cared very specifically about what it looks like. Right. You know? We did care about every single detail and how it was, but the actual form, there was many, many, tens and, you know, yeah. tens and tens of forms that we went through and threw away, which were not, it's, it, it was not important, it wasn't, the, and it wasn't the thing that we focused on, it was really the interior experience and this idea of a sort of pillared surface that you move through, and then how that can possibly start to create um, a, an intervention into a space which then starts to break up space and, and create pockets of space. Mm -hmm. So. Mm. So I guess a few things that, um, to reflect on, I mean, going back to you bringing up the team, uh, we were always talking about in the office this idea of, a, of the integrated project. Um, personally, I always, I love the term master builder in this allusion to uh, the sort of this, this entity that has the ability to technically drive everything and, and conceptually hold a project. And so um, we were, we're very interested in, in that as a word or, or you know, this in, idea of in, design integrated for the way things are going to get made. Mm. I think the pavilion really demonstrates uh, what's possible when you think like that and when you do uh, work like that. Um, mm. I guess I didn't mention it right at the start, but, um, you know, Terry literally gave us the keys to his factory and we were out there sort of working away uh, on, in the production of this thing at the same time as having driven... Uh, the whole conceptual design. Mm, yeah. So it really was uh, mm. an example of of, uh, of this holistic approach to yeah. design and yeah. making. Yeah, I almost hesitate to say it, but you know, there's this term like a Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah. Like it's a total work of art, and I'm not. That's not what I'm claiming, but that, but that um, that you take on every part of the project. Right. Right. And for those that don't know, Terry Tisdale is a fabric, uh, a, a steel. Um, fabricator at Horsley Park and with a massive factory, huge factory with like three 15 meter long laser cutters and turret punches and routers and um, and literally gave us the key to the factory. We could go anytime and, and use whatever we wanted to make the thing. And so it was a, it was an opportunity which, you know, it's just unthinkable. It's like a once in a lifetime thing. And so we really, um, did more than I would ever want to do again in terms of making the thing. <laughs> but it was extremely enjoyable and, um, you know, fulfilling and interesting and painful all at the same time. Uh, but we, you know, and learnt a lot. But you, by taking on um, the whole thing, you, you find yourself doing, you know, you, there's, a, there's a connection to, to making and to building, which, is, which was really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I'm going to take a, a bit of a sidestep here and maybe zoom out again. Um, you know, in, in kind of the modernist era in architecture, there was this tradition, of course, of commissioning large-scale artworks that would function either in courtyards or in lobbies of buildings. And of course, we can easily think of all the work that, that Calder did including in Australia, at Seidler's um, Australia Square, or kind of famously at Federal Plaza in Chicago, or the Picasso piece um, at Daly Plaza in Chicago. And there were these moments where, of course, modernism with the kind of universal potential became a backdrop for then art. And art then became almost a focal point, like the, the red Calder, Calder uh, in uh, Chicago sitting in front of Mises' black Federal Plaza, it was almost the soul of the building, right? Mm -hmm. And now it feels like there's been a reversal. So if we look at the, the obvious um, references for pavilion architecture, the Serpentine in London or PS1 in um, at MoMA, which just opened like today, I think, mm -hmm. the new version of that, you now have a situation where the biggest galleries, the biggest art benefactors 
are going into architecture and commissioning small one-off jewels of architecture that they then house in their galleries or in their courtyards. And of mm. course, Gene Sherman and, and Scaife deserve an enormous amount of respect for bringing that to Australia. Yeah. So, but what does that mean? Does that mean have art and architecture, have we swapped roles now? What does it mean now for architecture to be working in the gallery context? Mm. That's a huge question. Mm. <laughs> one that I think about way too much. But Yeah, it's a hard question. It's a big one. It's a huge one. And I feel almost guilty for asking you. <laughs> but that's what I'm going to do. What do you think about that? And I don't want to... Okay, let me... Let me I'm going to give you... Ten more seconds to think. <laughs> Let's not jump into the mire of, is architecture sculpture? I mean, that's not our discussion, yeah, right? Yeah. That's, that's a modernist discussion as well. Mm. We, are, we know that trifolium is architecture. We know it. Yeah. But we also know that the, the, the patron is an arts organization. And the context is not that of the city necessarily. It's in the confines of something that is um, well-rooted in, in art. What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, it's... Uh, pavilions lend themselves very well to, to a gallery context, mm. first of all. Um, that's, that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. One thing that... But then there's... I'm slightly uncomfortable the fact that I think pavilions also um, they have a tendency to productize and commodify architecture somewhat. Right. So you can turn them into a product. Yeah. And you can uh, buy them and sell them like art. Which is, I think... Which we've seen the Serpentine. All it, of those yeah. projects by mega famous architects yeah. all end up somewhere That's around right. the world. Some you know, wealthy patron will buy them and relocate them. Right, which is extremely uh, strange. Which is great for architecture, by the way. It's but yes. great, but it's a, strange, it's a strange idea in relation to typical understanding of architecture, yes. which, is, which is very much cited and related to place and a built fabric, which is part of the environment. It's not something, it's something that you commission and build, but not necessarily, and you buy and sell, but you inhabit. You don't it's not like a, a watch or a wallet. Right. So I think to some degree it, it does change that relationship. Mm. I don't know how much and how far, and I don't know what the repercussions are. Um, but it does do that, and particularly the, 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 the means and methods that we work with um, are highly geared towards um, making products yeah. and, and, and uh, commodification. And mm. so it's definitely something that we're aware of as we're working. That um, I mean, you could you could pop another pavilion out because we have all the molds and right. the processes. So it's it is possible. It would be difficult, but you can do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you take another enormous benefactor. Yes. To make it. Yeah. But I guess the flip side of that is that, uh, given that it is, it can be thought of as being sightless in the sense that it will be here for some time. It may go somewhere else. We don't know where. That I think can be freeing in terms of yeah. what you're doing at, at the design stage. We, you know, it wasn't, there was this ambiguity about where we were designing it for. Was it for just this, this courtyard space or was it for some it's kind of future, future life, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so confusion or freedom, one of the two, was offered by that. You know? Yeah, it removes constraints, but then the freedom is, is also somewhat constraining. But it, it um, it then it just it becomes a spatial intervention which can move around. It's not it it has a different um, it has a different function. It's not about a particular place. Right. So then, is that function for you? Because this is something that you don't know where the next stage, or even whether it will reemerge. Right. This could disappear. Yeah. Um, does this now? How does this function for your office then? If we look at architecture, typically you have a client, they have a function they need to fill, they need a space, they commission an architect, yep. then they, you know, more often than not, they don't commission an architect, yep. they commission a builder or some, you know, designer. Um, 
the building gets built, they walk away, it gets used however, right? Yeah, yeah. So your, your hospital can become a museum, can become apartments, can be torn down. Yeah. Um, your pavilion exists very specifically as something that, that manifested first in an art context. Yeah. We're appreciating this now as something in the visual art yeah. kind of feel. Um, how does this function for your office? Do you see it as a maquette? Is it like a beginning stage for a project that's coming up later? Or is it a moment of research? Or is it expression? Like, how does this, for Arma, what's the, what's the, what's the big, what's the end game, in a way, for mm. a project like this? Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I don't know, Gabe, for you, but I think it's all of those things. Yeah. I mean, at, at, at once it's, um, it's the beginning mm. to a larger project, but then at the same time, it's, it is in and of itself its own entity, so it's not something that you would ever do again. Right. It doesn't necessarily scale very well, like, um, but right. you could take bits and pieces and reuse them. So it's not necessarily a... Uh, so it's not a maquette in that way. It's not, not really, no. It's not a scale version of something else. No, it is definitely okay. its own thing. It's, right. it, it's, it's, I guess it's been put into the world and it's its own... Um, but it was definitely uh, it, it became a platform or it allowed us to really really think deeply and investigate and test in material form ideas that we've been playing with for a very long time so through other projects that we've worked on with you and, and, and others um, very small and, and uh, much more, you know, simple or quick projects, we were right. really able to take those ideas and develop them much further. So mm. that, that, it was a very, very generous, um, you know, extremely generous way of doing that for the, for the gallery to allow us to do that. Yeah. In a sense, um, it allowed us to be completely, and this is again, I think, a, a function of the pavilion um, and a, an architecture without program is this, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but <laughs> It allows, as an architect, it allows you to be, want to become completely selfish. Right. You know, you can, um, there is no one telling you what to do. There's no program we needed to hit. Uh, there was so few rules. We just had to make sure that it fit within the courtyard. We had a budget, which we completely blew like four times over anyway. <laughs> so, so in that way, it was very traditional architecture. Yeah, it was okay, exactly good, right. good. We found the connection. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it's, um, it definitely allowed us to, to pursue areas of interest that we had long um, desired to, to you know, pursue. I think it's one of the, the, um, the strengths of the Fugitive Structures Initiative. Um, well, side note, I wrote a paper recently on the kind of the, the moment of intersection between art and architecture, and I was quite critical of the Serpentine, for instance. Yep. And my number one critical kind of point about that initiative is that the selection of the architects is completely opaque. Mm -hmm. No one knows. And the only thing you can find online or ask anyone about that they can say is the restriction is, well, it has to be someone who hasn't yet built in the UK. So that could be Frank Gehry. Yeah. I mean, so then you end up with a situation in which you have a highly influential gallery run by Hans Ulrich Oberst, one of the co-directors, who is one of the most kind of vocal um, curators that has embraced architecture, yet they're only dealing with the Zahas and Rims and mm. Frank Gehry's. So you end up with a moment in which it's like, oh, it's a beautiful little piece of architecture that they would have built somewhere anyway, mm. right? It doesn't really help us as yep. a profession. Yeah. Other than maybe saying that architecture is a draw, like it's become a, a commercially viable thing. I can build a pavilion. People will come. People will come to see it, which is interesting. Yeah. But not really. Um, PS1 and MoMA in New York is a bit different because they do focus on young practices that have a connection to New York somewhere or another. Mm. Equally opaque selection, but I think more in line of what's happening here. Yeah. And I think one thing that, and this isn't a question, it's more of a comment. It's one thing that, that I know that I and my collaborator, Sam Spur, um, we feel very positive about is the fact that it is a moment in which Andrew Burns, Arma, 
can come in and experiment and build something yeah. at the beginnings of their careers, yeah. not when they're already, you know, when you're already <laughs> so famous that you don't need that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. So I think maybe you could talk about how this is going to affect your practice in the future. Like, what do you think is coming up for Arma? A little background, you, know, you guys have only been in practice for a few years, right? Three yeah. or four years? Yeah, just hit three years. Mm -hmm. How yeah. did you form? What was the... Uh, yeah, I guess um, we had a, uh, a common understanding that um, the way we were drawing was, was different to even how we were taught to draw, and we thought it had implications for how, definitely how things could get made, but how you could even conceive and think of architecture. So um, that was the sort of common, the common ground we had, born out of uh, some common experiences going through Education and everything. Yeah, we both, we both went to Sydney Uni and we went through... And UTS. And UTS, sorry, <laughs> and UTS. <laughs> They'll and, fire me if I don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, at a time when, when CNC equipment like laser cutters and 3D printers and um, three milling machines right. were brand new and software, people were using software and, and no one taught us how to, you know... Right it quickly became apparent that it would be super helpful if we knew how to use this stuff. Yes. And also just looked like it was heaps of fun. Yeah, right. We, you know? And so we got in and figured it out ourselves, because it's not so hard. No. And, uh, and then, it, you know, from there it went on. Yeah, the pavilion looks really easy. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all could do that, you know? You just, I just sure. don't want to do it, that's why. I didn't that's right. I mean, there's this, I mean, technology is sort of kind of inevitably at the center of well, we're trying to avoid it here, avoiding technique and technology for no, 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 the pavilion. No, no. Go but for it's it. sort of inevitably at the center of, uh, of, of armor and, and of, I think, a lot of change that's happening in, in, in the world. Um, and, you know, we, we just, we saw to tie in a, a, a practice centered around an understanding of um, the unfolding possibilities, creative possibilities that technology, you know. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, it's, there's, we're three years old, we started, um, two of us quickly became three, and then four, and then five, and six. Um, definitely we're a technologically leveraged practice. Sure. We use technology to, to affect larger change than we would otherwise be able to affect. Um, but not to the detriment of design, right. for sure. It's always the number one. It's always in subjugation to a design uh, desire or outcome. Uh, in terms of what the pavilion will um, do for us. I, I can't imagine anyone calling on the phone tomorrow and saying, I want another pavilion. <laughs> because the answer would definitely be no. <laughs> but, um, but definitely as a, you know, it forms a milestone, which we can, you know, and, and purely as a personal, I think, um, a personal milestone where we say, we, you know, it's very difficult for, it's extremely, I think as everyone would be aware, it's extremely difficult for a young practice to, to build anything. Yes. Especially something that's completely personal and, you know, of their own sort of desire and making. And so it's, that opportunity is, is uh, you know, is one, one in a million. And yeah. so it, it, it provides that, it provides a milestone and, a, and it's, a, you know, and a sort of, you know, you can say we did that, we... And it's then possible to move on from that and it gives you the confidence and, and the ability to, to move forward, I think, in a way which is productive as a, as a practice. Hmm. Well, I noticed, I mean, obviously I've followed your practice now for the, its entire life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I have seen you guys, every project that you've done, when you mention it to me, it's like, well, this is the most we could possibly do. Yeah. Like, this is, yeah. we'll never, we will never do that again. Yeah. And then the next project that I hear about, like, you've gone up exponentially in difficulty. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, well, David, we're never doing that again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not even, I, I'm going to quit. Like, yes. I'm not going to be an architect anymore. Yeah. Then Trifolium happens, and you take, it's by a factor of 10 yeah. in terms of complexity in terms of ambition, yeah. um, not many architects would even attempt mm -hmm. the complexity that you've achieved. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think, you know, and this also is not a question, and maybe it's, we'll, we'll open up the floor. Yeah. Um, I would encourage you yeah. to keep that exponential growth. Right. I was and, and don't give up. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say you had a solution for that. Like <laughs> a, a special pill. We could not do that. I have anymore. a box I want you to design. Yeah. <laughs> one meter by one meter. Made of cardboard. Yes. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you're totally right. Like, we've said that so many times. I, I remember each time. <laughs> I don't know why we do it. I, I really... Um, well, I do. I know why you do it. I mean, there, there is something that... There, there is there's an ambition that you guys have shown from when you were students to now, which is not a very long period of time, yeah. um, in which you've always chosen the more um, challenging route. And I think that's, that's what separates you in a lot of ways from uh, your peers, people older than you, younger than you. And that's just something that, that you just have that trait, for better or for worse, I think it's for better. Uh, and you know, I, for one, look forward to the future. <laughs> as long as you don't implode. <laughs> if you don't implode, like, don't implode just yet. Not yet. <laughs> so, uh, what time is it? Oh, look at that, perfect. Um, perhaps we can open up the floor, yes? Where is it going to go after 30th December? Ah, ah everyone looks to the yeah. floor. And That's a good, <laughs> I know, it's a good question. I don't know. I would, um, I would hope that it goes somewhere public and uh, in the city, but, but somewhere that people can enjoy it. Somewhere people can enjoy it and that, that is public and visible. Yeah, but I don't know where that, um, where that would be yet. It's a challenge. It is a challenge, yeah. Is the city council talking about it? I mean, is it sort of coming? I think. Danielle? That's the representative. Yeah, we are yeah. actively uh, seeking input if you have ideas where it could go. I mean, there are so many. There's institutions, there are public places, there are private collectors that you know, have crazy gardens, but they have all sorts of things. So, you know, if you do have a suggestion, but we are uh, thinking of a few avenues at the moment, and, and we're starting to make uh, a connection with them. But uh, essentially, we'll leave SCAC, unfortunately, I have to say, Jane would love to keep it forever, uh, around December, uh, sorry, February, January, mid January next year. So, you know. Where it will go, I'm not sure yet, but you, know, you do have a good idea. Four <laughs> years. If you've got 20 bucks, no. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, come on. Yes, sir. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the thread of engineering that runs through that structure? It is obviously a superb creation, but there is an engineering essence in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had a really, really fantastic engineer. Uh, who I forgot to mention at the beginning, who we worked with throughout the project, Alex Edwards from Arup. Uh, he's a structural engineer at Arup, who worked under Tristram Caffre, who was the previous, who's the current head of Arup worldwide, um, worked under Tristram to design the water cube in Beijing. <coughs> young, young engineer, but really, really fabulous. And uh, he really helped us to thin down the entire structure. So. The, the Corian shell is self-supporting, so it's, um, it's a form-active structure. So there's three wings or, or leaves, uh, each form a vault, and um, lean on each other. And so the Corian itself, which is 19 millimeters thick, um, is taking all of the, all of the, the dead load and the, and the live load for the structure. Um, it's held together at each intersection, each node, with a a stainless, um, in effect it's a stainless patch fitting, like you see on a glass curtain wall. So these stainless brackets um, uh, get screw fixed into the Corian. Each, each Corian panel has um, quite a few stainless ferrules which are glued in, so they're uh, drilled out and glued into the Corian, and then the brackets hold each of the Corian panels together so that they all form a continuous structure. Um, these brackets then uh, span out to hold the interior. So the interior, um, it doesn't necessarily form a structural function. It does, it does end up bracing the thing by providing a second layer. It makes it stiffer, but it doesn't, um, it's not necessary. So you could take the inside out and the whole thing would stand up on its own. That was actually a beautiful moment. I saw it at that stage in the construction in which it was just the Corian with the brackets hanging down. Mm. And it was, 
a bit unnerving. Impossibly yeah. thin. Impossibly yeah. thin. Like yeah. it, it should not. You look at it and you're like, no, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. No, I was, I was petrified. <laughs> but it was beautiful. It was absolute. I wish that everyone could see it. Also in that stage. Mm. Um, I mean, just, as architects, we love to see things in construction. Like, yeah. We, we love that. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But more than just, uh, or rather than engineering, I guess, what we had foremost in our minds and really the way we work is everything, we think about things, but then it, it always gets expressed through, through geometry. So we had some really rigorous um, sort of geometric ideas underpinning uh, the way the thing went together. Um, yeah. And so it's this kind of irony of uh, at once wanting to be expressive and yet doing that with, with, with what's quite a controlled uh, way of drawing where, you know, for example, that interior surface, each panel is actually a, a cylinder uh, and the forms that you get, uh, these the shapes which you see as on the outside as well are formed by the natural intersections between all of those sort of cylindrical shapes. Um, yeah, does that, does that make sense? Because... Um, there's there's more than there's more than every single thing except for the screws uh, is unique. So there's more than three thousand unique pieces. Every single thing is unique. I think which is unusual yeah. for architecture. Um, and the three the three wings each one is is composed. They look um, form found or sort of like a natural curve, but they're actually composed of of two arcs which, um, which sit tangentially to each other, which meant that we only needed to make two moulds to mould all the Corian on top, because they're not, they're not freeform. So it's really just two cylinders. And then on the inside, there's 152 panels on the outside, 152 panels on the inside, so each one of those 152 stainless mirror polished steel panels is a cylindrical patch which has been intersected and cut out. The reason it's cylindrical is that it means that it's developable or it unfolds so that you can laser cut it out of it. It's 0.8 mil thick stainless, and then you screw fix it on one end and roll it over and fix it on the other, so there's no, there's no forming involved, there's no... There's no complex surfaces. Yeah, 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 no complex processes to form those surfaces. Yeah, right. So very simple, even though it um, appears highly complex, Visually, the actual production and manufacturing process is relatively simple mm. in relation to its form. When you erected it here, was it the first time you erected it? it uh, or did you put it up in the factory first? Or did you have any... Is this the, our production technique is called just-in-time. <laughs> to keep production yeah, moving smoothly. <laughs> So we makes yeah, it very popular with clients. <laughs> well, I mean, um, and, and generally the way we work is this idea of you know, draw everything. It's, it gets prefabricated and goes together like a, a jigsaw puzzle, really. And that is a is a cause of tremendous anxiety for all involved because you're relying on uh, that that system, the thought that goes into it beforehand, meaning that it'll all work. Yeah, we we made numerous prototypes. Sure. And we, we did make a, a fairly large prototype in December, November, December last year, mm. which kind of didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we fixed a bunch of stuff after that, and then we went straight into production. And the goal was to build it in the factory first, but we, we ran out of time. And so we just sent everything to site and hoped that it would go together. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it did. It, you know, which was almost as remarkable as Yeah. <laughs> I was very surprised. <laughs> but very happy. Well, that's, yeah, Richard. Time for one more? Yeah, please. Beautiful work, Okay. I want to fashion a question about play, uh, because it seems to me that it's logical, the logical uh, program for the work is, is play. And David's rightly brought up. Sunni, but of course Sunni and Parkton lent over so much to Constant, even if you and Constant and Eisen. Uh, so that's a Sunni's sort of mix of Eisen and, uh, you know, yeah. And, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> something to me. Uh, 
Yeah, so you, uh, uh, let me go back to... Constant. Uh, yeah, constant, yeah. So of course, constant, uh, Neil is a great situationist. Uh, the whole idea of situationism was that uh, programming architecture would ultimately be play, mm. or building would be fluid program, and it didn't happen other than in the internet. But still we see this structure emerge. Uh, it's not like a constant construction, it is on itself, it is about the technology, the technological feats of today. But it does still go into a gallery context as something in which you might play. It's, it's kind of, uh, it avoids controversy in all other ways other than perhaps notions of play. And the question is really about, I mean, is, is, as great as this is, and it's what it is, highly experimental is so important for its time. But where it's also running parallel to a time where art in galleries has almost been, in the public space, is being challenged by things, aberrations like vivid, or uh, you know, notions of play, which are not really sophisticated, whereas your, your pavilion is a possible sophistication of notions of play. I think it would be a beautiful thing under which to meet someone for a love or something, you know, <laughs> to be romantic, or it could be something else. But, but nonetheless, when you put it in here, it is like play. And the last thing before, so I'd like to know what you think about that notion of play. But then in terms of practice, this of course is uh, a known paradigm. People like Mark Newsom, for instance, first displayed his chairs and included the Lockheed Lounge in Los Angeles, and then went on to have a particular career. So this will be... Mm -hmm. So there's two questions. Mm -hmm. that, that, that is clearly strategic, and rightly so, and might lead to a practice outside the gallery. But really take with it this, this Play, because the only controversial thing about the work is, I think, play. What the hell is that? Can we even do it anymore? I think uh, technology didn't release us to play and actually impact. Is, is this a real escape? Is this about real play? Mm. Uh, well, the, the, um... Down. <laughs> that was meant to be an up, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it. I think it's. I mean, it's, I think it's playful. But I think, in particular, the process of making it was playful. I think there's, you know, in the video that's out there, you see. I mean, effectively, what we did is we constructed a game for ourselves, like a, an algorithm, which you literally have to play like a like a video game. It, it it wants to do its own thing, and the way the thing is constructed, computationally or algorithmically, is that there's. Um, uh, this is really somewhat banal, but we made um, we made an algorithm. We made a computer program which packed circles, and so we could we could make a surface, and then you could say go, and it would it would instantiate a whole bunch, hundreds of circles, all of different sizes, and you could paint with a with a brush on the computer, paint the surface black and white, and depending on the color, circles would pack more or less frequently with different sizes. And then you would get results at the other end. So it was, on the one hand, top down, you paint and you see a result. On the other hand, the computer's doing so much stuff, so it's very bottom up, and you don't really have complete control over what you're gonna get. And so it becomes a game where, you, where you're sort of riffing or working instinctually with the computer to make this thing. So on the one hand, the process is very playful. Well, I, think, I think it actually works, I think it does Interest me as something that makes you feel playful. I think kids would play them. I don't mean that that's in any way superficial. Yeah. It's actually really interesting. So a playful process mm. has led to a structure which is very open sport. Yeah. So that's why I thought maybe it is, it is a, strategic, a strategy that you could take forward. It's something very serious in yeah. terms of yeah. architectural programming. Yeah, definitely. I think, and maybe also it's a way to interact with the building as the first stage in interaction is that is that you, there's a desire to interact with it, to look at it or touch it or work out a relationship to it. And, um, you know, I, that's definitely, without making stuff which moves around, which I'm not interested in, but, um, but I think that's, yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah, the first step towards that. It was definitely important for us. Well, I think visually also one of the things that achieved quite 
beautifully and perfectly is now that the lights are up and functioning, the sun's going down nice and early. Mm. Visually, I think a lot of people who were there at the opening don't really have any idea what the thing really is. Like, we have to come back now and re-experience it. Mm. Now that it's fully complete, the light's working and, you know, everything's installed. Because visually, there is like a vertiginous moment in which you walk in and you don't quite know how to negotiate where you are. Yeah. Right? It's not, there are no corners. There's no right angles. Yeah. And the reflections, I was just saying this to some people outside before, you feel like, well, there must be a thousand lights inside the top of this thing. Mm. Of course, there isn't. There's, what, 40 or 50? Yeah, 42 lights. 42 lights in the ground. But because of that experiments that you guys are working on with the, the convex mirrors, mm. we now then can see this as something more. It, it, has, it has a new, it, it challenges us spatially in a way that we're not familiar with. Yeah. And that, that's something that I think is, uh, if you told that to a client, they'd be like, no, no we're not gonna pay for that. But once it's finished, it's one of those moments where people can walk in and, and be amazed for a second. Mm. Just like, whoa, I, I don't even know what, how yeah. this is working. Yeah, I mean, if, we, if, if that happens with anyone, that would definitely be a success. Well, I, yeah, it happened sure. to three or four people when I was just yeah. having a glass of wine earlier. <laughs> the success. Thank you, thanks. Uh, more questions for Rob and Gabe? Yes, sir. I'm wondering if you guys are conscious of and or intentional about the effect that you're having on the, well, the effect that you will potentially have um, and are already having on the architectural profession. And if you guys sort of, I, I guess if you guys discuss it between you and if it's a, an ambition to have a certain effect um, and to affect a certain change or, or whether you're just sort of having some fun watching things unfold around you. Truthfully, I feel completely invisible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I really have no idea. Um, I don't know, what do you think? Uh, my answer was going to be that, yeah, uh, in terms of changing the architecture profession, I, I agree, I don't, I don't, I don't feel, uh, invisible is a good word, but in terms of changing the architecture profession, I just see uh, an opportunity to do things better, and that sort of uh, is a primary motivator. It's, it's a reason why we thought we should try and do things ourselves, like we thought maybe we can help do things a bit better. And inevitably, uh, we always, most of the time, unlike this, this uh, project where we're working with in, in larger teams and, and there really is a, a goal of working together. Yeah. Um. yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Because I, I honestly, I haven't thought about it. Like, I think if I could do it, I mean, the one thing I think um, I would be really happy to do would be to encourage um, young people who have no idea about building to just go out and start building stuff. Because when we started three years ago, we had, well, I anyway, I personally had no idea about build, about anything. <laughs> I knew how to Photoshop stuff, <laughs> literally. So, um, in three years, you can do a lot. I mean, in, yeah. a, in a year, like you can do a lot just by reading books, and it's not—it's not that hard, I think. So I know I say that, and it is hard, but you don't need to do. You don't need to. Um, it's not something you need to do when you're 50. I think. I think it's, you know, you just need to do it. So I think if, if I had any effect, it would be just to encourage people to, to do things, to be more, um, to be a little bit crazier. Yeah, it's because it's, it's, uh, it's a huge risk. A huge, I mean, it might not have worked. It could have fallen down, for sure. And, and then we'd never build anything again. But it didn't. So, um, yeah, I think I th- that would be the only effect that I'd want to have or that I can imagine having. But yeah, no, I don't, I, um, I'm not aware of having an effect. It would be, yeah. But it sort of stands to reason that the, the potential that comes out of the tools that you're bringing to the profession, which have typically not been possible, or yeah. typically not been present, um, yes. bring an incredible amount of opportunity to the profession. Absolutely, um, yeah. Sort of, I'm sort of wondering if you... Oh yeah, that can, that definitely, definitely. I mean, we're trying daily to, to change things. So just in terms of projects we're working on at the moment, um, with one developer last year, same developer, they wouldn't look at 3D models. They would only look at 2D drawings in, um, for review. So this is in shop drawing phase. Uh, it's already all designed and 
Um, we'd only look at 2D AutoCAD drawings. And we really pushed hard to say, no, you really, it's not helpful. We really just need to review the 3D model. Now, every time we have a meeting, we just review the 3D model. So there's, every day there's a definite impact that we're having on the building profession for sure. And it's definitely strategic and it's, um, it's like we're trying to do that. Oh. I love, though, that your first impulse, though, was not thinking about technological changes, which I would actually, and maybe this is my, my role as the academic, there is architecture in terms of the profession, then there is architecture in terms of discipline. Yep. And, and I think that the, the more complex question that can't be answered today, mm. I think it's going to be something that we would like to try to talk about in the next seminars. Yep is how projects like this can affect the discipline of architecture separate from <laughs> the profession of architecture. Yeah. And I think that's something that we have to hold on to and has to be something that is okay to discuss. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you defaulted to that, which I think is maybe where your question was starting, and you were just like, duh, nah, you know, and you, know, you got quite nervous. It, it is easier to talk about the technological changes. Yeah. What's more difficult to talk about is, is changing the ways in which, um, in which buildings are conceived mm. and also the, the, the influences that create those conceptual developments. And that's something that I think is a much more difficult discussion. Yeah. More exciting. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. More questions for Robin Gabe? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a huge um, impetus throughout the, uh, the world now for prefabrication because of the amount of stuff that we have to build. Um, you can see the direct linkage with what you're doing and that potential for, yep. um, for housing and so on. Yep. And are you guys involved in doing anything in that respect? Um, thinking about it, because yeah. it seems perfectly... Um, you definitely... It's, uh, it's definitely on the forefront of our minds. Yeah, I mean, I guess every project we get involved with, inevitably we bring that approach to it of prefabricating. Prefabrication. Yeah. But in terms of specifically in housing in a more speculative or even, you know, um, in a larger, a larger project that is more open-ended than what we deal with on a day-to-day, -day, not yet, so. Right, yeah, because um, uh, what, you, what you've demonstrated here is that with prefabrication, you can actually just bring another quality yep. to the work yep. that is lightness and, mm. and beauty, if you like, or yep. space and so on, yep. which, which um, not many prefabricators would, or prefabrication no. companies think about. No, I think it's definitely a different sense of prefabrication or like um, bespoke construction or manufacturing. Yeah. Um, and definitely like, I guess, and also to link to the previous question, you know, if you know, people would say, well, you can't build something. You can't make, you can't make a building with like no tolerance or with, less than, with a millimetre or less than a millimetre tolerance. You, know, you just can't build like that. And, but the, the reality is if you couldn't build like that, then planes wouldn't fly, boats wouldn't float. You know, it's possible. So it just it demands a different type of a way of working. And, and so it's definitely like there's a goal to change that into a, to, to manufacture things in a, in a factory context, which gives you the ability to realize those tolerances. And uh, I mean, you know, and we need, like I, we're, we're looking to start to, to make a house ourselves. And, you know, when you look around and, and you see you can get, um, you know, the cost of a, of a house is, is huge from, from almost everyone. It's like, the major, it's like the major cost in their lifetime. And you compare what it costs for an architecturally designed house, home to a, to a um, what, do, what do you call the other ones? Um. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, an, a project home. Yeah. You know, you're, it's, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense that it, it seems totally sensible that, that we should be able to build quality homes and, and, and environments for people much less expensively, I think. And so there's, personally, there's a huge desire to, to push or to investigate that. Yeah. 
I can see your practice going in that direction, but I can also see it going in another direction, which um, is not architecture, and that is like um, 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 littering the world sculpture sculpture parks with these things, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, or variations of them. Litter. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I hope it's architecture, um, purely for the. I think there's something very satisfying about having an impact socially um, and, and, and environmentally, and, but pr primarily socially, being able to change the way people interact with each other and just and live through, through form and material. Um, and I, and so that's, that's personally, that's definitely an impulse, yeah. All right, any, any more questions for Robin Gates? Great. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.